the friendship of man and woman, according to Aristotle and St. Thomas. It's all about life. It's all about life. To live is the rarest thing in the world. Most people exist. That is all. So said Oscar Wilde. To live is to be moved from within. Life consists in activities that are, in varying degrees, my own. It can seem a contradiction in terms, then, to speak of living together. How can my life, something that is in a very real sense irreducibly mine, also be another's? Is it not one of the great Miranda in human life that, as Hilaire Belloc says in a great passage of The Path to Rome about his first seeing the Alps, to what emotion shall I compare this astonishment? So, in first love, one finds that this can belong to me. I do not intend here to examine the rich notion of common good and how friendship is a uniquely important instance of one. To consider this more, you would do well to to consult your own Professor Froelich, whose work on this has been very influential uh, on me and for which I am very grateful. I will take the notion of common good for granted. Happiness consists in activity in its highest reaches. My own activity is not simply my own. It can be shared with the closest of friends. Was the question I put before you? Two, what is necessary for a man and a woman to be friends? And can they be friends in the highest sense of friendship? My plan, I will begin with a brief general consideration of friendship, Therein, having seen the importance of equality and sameness in friendship, I will turn to examine Aristotle and St. Thomas's view of friendship between unequals, and then finally move to the friendship of man and woman as a particular kind of friendship between unequals. General principle of friendship. Friendship, it's all about convivere, shared life, living together. And given this principle, I think we can also take as another principle, friendship is rooted in sameness and equality, and it seeks, as much as is reasonable, sameness and equality. Here's how I would explain this. To the extent that there is difference between two people, there is less unity of life. One might immediately ask, but doesn't the common good of a society benefit from and often require difference and inequality in its parts? And cannot the parts of a society have a great unity through their various participations in the common good, participations which are different and unequal? The answer is affirmative. But this is where we need to see that friendship is not just any common good. A tutor and a student can both share in the common good of their pursuit of wisdom, while this gives them a certain unity by their each participating in the same good, this does not in itself them friends make. Friendship is a very specific kind of common good. Qua friends, two friends share the same life and participate in it in the same or nearly the same way. This, I think, is particularly characteristic of friendship. Here's how I think about this in a concrete way. There will always be a certain natural diversity in the interests of friends. 
especially about less important matters. We might note off the bat that diversity of opinion and desire about more important matters will immediately be a matter of concern between friends. Let's think about the less important things, for example, hiking. Let's say I like hiking and my wife doesn't, just to take a random example. <laughs> Completely random. One of the beautiful aspects of friendship is that a friend will come to approve and even love what the other loves precisely because the other loves it. Isn't that a fabulous thing? Loving something because someone you love loves it. I will deeply appreciate my, that my wife is willing to like hiking in some sense because I like hiking. But consider this. Isn't it all the better when perhaps through a shared life together it comes to the point where she now loves hiking because of what hiking is? And I'm able to say, really? Now we can just do this together? Oh, joy. <laughs> right? Do, do you see how really there even that little difference made a difference. It didn't make for some great rich diversity that I liked hiking and she didn't. It wasn't a big problem, but it actually is better if even the small things we share together. So I would assert that there is always a trajectory towards sameness in friendship. Next, principles of friendship between unequals. Of course, Aristotle is always very attentive to the common usage of terms. Common usage, common usage certainly allows of friendship between unequals, or in any case where there is not too great an inequality. It is worth noting, however, that in the Eudamian ethics, Aristotle actually makes a distinction between those who have a friendship and those who can be called friends. He reserves the latter term for those who have a friendship of equality. Equals can be called friends. Those who are unequal, even if they have a friendship, he says, are not called friends. Now, this, draw, this kind of drove some of my students crazy, and, and, and they just kind of keep doing this number, which I understand. Look, if you have a friendship, you're friends, right? I mean, what does it mean to have a friendship and not be able to be called friends? But at the same time, I, 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 I would just throw out at you, if someone says to you, do you have a friendship with your father? I, I think you're, you're going to naturally find yourself just saying, yeah. But what about if someone says, is your father your friend? <laughs> I, I, you, might, you might hesitate. I think, it, it, in, in any case, I think Aristotle perhaps has a little something there. This distinction, of course, serves to reinforce what we have just seen. Formally speaking, friendship between equals is more truly friendship than friendship between unequals. Then how should we think about friendship between unequals? Or how, given that friendship is rooted in and seeks equality, can people who are unequal and different, and those two go together, be friends at all? Well, here we get some classic Aristotle and St. Thomas clarity of thought. In order for there to be friendship between unequals, there needs to be some basis of equality, the equality that can and must obtain between the potential friends is an equality of proportion. In other words, 
there is not a simple equality of love, as there would be between equal friends, but there is an equality in their each loving according to the other's worth. And what is it particularly that must be offered proportionally between unequal friends? Love. For friendship to be possible, each must love the other in accord with the other's lovableness, which is different from one's own lovableness. What a delight to, to pop in on uh, Professor Collins' class today, and, and they were, they were to, to watch you all wrestle with these, with these very points. St. Thomas explains, in all friendships involving inequality of one person to the other, love is given proportionately so that the superior party is loved more than he loves. The same is true concerning the person who is more useful, more pleasant, or more excellent in any way whatsoever. For when each person is loved by reason of the worth he manifests, an equality of proportion that apparently pertains to friendship will ensue. End quote. So Aristotle and St. Thomas preserved the principle that friendship must be rooted in equality, in equality, inasmuch as there is a kind of equality here, not a perfect equality, but one of proportion. To examine more closely how St. Thomas sees this working, we can turn to the example that he most often uses, parent and child. What is perhaps most obvious, obvious, first of all, is the inequality of the relationship. As St. Thomas says, quote, a son ought not to ask of his father the reverence that the son shows the father, end quote. As noted earlier in the case of the teacher and student, the relationship here, too, involves a shared life, a unity of coordinated actions, but one in which there is not necessarily friendship. There is perhaps most, this is perhaps most obvious in the fact that each person has something quite different to offer the other. And in the case of parent and child, as in the case of teacher and student, a real difference in what ought to be offered will always remain. But there is nevertheless the possibility of something more to occur here, a proportionality in the exchange of love. Again, when each person is loved by reason of the worthy manifest, in a quality proportion that apparently pertains to friendship will ensue. St. Thomas applies this specifically to parent and child. You ready for this? But when children show their parents what is due those who have generated them, when parents show their children what is due their offspring, there will exist between them a lasting and just or virtuous friendship, end quote. I'd like to draw out a couple of things that I think are implied in this that will give us the overall formula, as it were, for friendship between unequals. Love always presupposes knowledge. To love according to the worth of the other requires, first of all, that one really understands the other. Now remember, it's always harder to understand something or someone that is different from oneself. Somehow we must come to understand the other in his very difference and then love according to that difference. At that point, inequality of proportion has been achieved and friendship can commence in earnest. Now that we love each other with inequality of proportion, we can start to convivere, to live together as friends. Seems to me, then, that in friendships between unequals, there are really three steps. See the difference, love according to the difference, and then live according to that love. 
One thing my students and I have wrestled with is this. In what sense does the lower member in the unequal relationship love more? What does it mean in this case to love more? Here is my thought. By the way, I will not forget the large person A and small person B written on the, on the board. That was, that, was, that was brilliant. Here's my thought. <laughs> to love is to will good to another. A fundamental aspect of willing the good of another is to affirm the goodness he has and to wish that goodness to continue and to grow. That a child, according to St. Thomas, must love his parent more than the parent loves him refers fundamentally to this. The child wills that the parent be a parent and all that that implies. As it were, there is more good to affirm and love in the parent. The student wills that the teacher be a teacher affirms it and all that that implies. The parent and the teacher are more worthy of love. There is more goodness there to affirm. Really, to understand what your father and your mother have done for you, to understand what it means that they have been your parents is quite a task seems to me that there would be very few moments in life like one wherein you can look at your father or your mother and finally, to some real extent, begin to understand. And you can express this in love, and you both know it. Yea, isn't Aristotle right? The word friendship now can really begin to apply to this relationship whereas before it did not. May I make so bold as to suggest it might be fitting, and I'm speaking to the students, that your own parents hear certain things from you now that you're an adult that maybe they've never heard before. One thing is clear. Friendship between parents and child is something that has to be achieved, worked out in virtue. It cannot be presumed as a given. Experience makes that very clear, doesn't it? Quick thought concerning the side of the parents might be in order. Parents can conceive the end, meaning the phoenix, of their parenting to be such friendship with their children. Their goal is to foster their child's growth in such fashion that one day their child can stand on his own. At last, in some sense, they're equal. Much the same can be said for the relationship of teacher and student. A student who can really appreciate what it means to be a teacher is a student who might be able to have a friendship with his teacher. Again, this is something that must be worked out in virtue. I'd like to offer a brief reflection. Isn't it beautiful in God's providence we can have such profound, unequal relationships in our life? It is these, especially at least in early life, that have formed us to be who we are, parents and teachers, to be what they should be, always look toward, in some sense, overcoming the difference with their children or students. In some sense, parenting ceases when at last the ch children are mature and capable of friendship. At the same time, it is then that parenting itself is finally seen 
for what it was all about. From the other side, we want to grow to be like our parents and our beloved teachers, though we are very happy knowing that as long as we live, even if in some way we, thanks to them, are able to surpass them, they will always have been our parents and our teachers, and nothing can change that. Man and woman, we come now to the specific folks of the lecture. It will perhaps come as no surprise that Aristotle and St. Thomas consider the relationship between husband and wife a relationship between unequals. I'm reading that fast so you can't disagree with it. <laughs> okay. Moving right along. <clears throat> Unfortunately for me, there's question and answer. So I would like to... <laughs> So I'd like to use the principles we have just discussed, plus a couple more, to take a closer look at the friendship of husband and wife. Here are a couple preliminary points. I think it is true to say that for Aristotle and St. Thomas, the inequality in question between man and woman is fundamentally an inequality in role that is rooted in natural differences, especially in how reason tends to function in man and woman. This is a corollary of another proposition, the difference between man and woman should first be understood in terms of its teleological ordering to the household. In other words, the inequality and difference between man and woman is itself ordered to their diverse contributions to and participation in the common good of the household. The failure to understand this point, I argue, is a major cause of the demise of friendship between man and woman today. But first of all, what I'm asserting here is that at issue in the aforementioned inequality is not an inferiority of woman qua human, but rather the subordination of her role in the household to that of the man's role. It would not be fitting for me to downplay this inequality as understood by Aristotle and St. Thomas, but again, this is an, an inequality in their relationship in a household and inequality rooted in natural, accidental differences that are biological, emotional, and psychological. With that said, I think that the most important thing to focus on here is not inequality, but difference. The bottom line is that men and women are different, and their very difference is naturally ordered to diverse roles in the household. And it is this difference that proposes a serious challenge for the prospects of friendship between any man and any woman. St. Thomas's view of what's necessary for any friendship of inequality I've summarized as know the difference, love according to the difference, and then live the difference. It goes without saying then that we need especially to focus on what is involved in understanding the opposite sex. May I be bold? If at times you stop and wonder, and I certainly hope that you do, for if you do, it's a sign that you've begun to see why is it so difficult for me to get along with the opposite sex? <laughs> you are not alone. <laughs> <clears throat> I have an answer for you. <laughs> At your age, you have scarcely begun to know the opposite sex. <laughs> At risk of being obtuse, I'm going to push you on this. I ask that you remember two basic principles of wise men. One, the first step toward wisdom is realizing how little you know. Two, 
Knowledge of human life comes through age and much experience. There is a reason, ladies and gentlemen, that there is practically no such thing as a solid marriage where there was not at some point a kind of crisis that went something like this. You have absolutely got to be kidding me. There it is. May I make a suggestion as to why this is very understandable? Like knows like. We cannot but project our own way of experiencing life on others. You know, young ones, I am 100% in earnest. I say this not to discourage, but rather to encourage. Show me the man who really understands woman, and I'll show you a man of humility and virtue who can live a marriage beyond what most people have ever imagined possible. Let's look more closely at the challenges we face to understanding the other sex, because I really think that's, that, that's the real show here. The challenges, having already mentioned the fundamental one, that we must learn to appreciate something that's different from and can be threatened, threatening to our accustomed way of living. Two other specific challenges I want to mention are romance and our failure to understand the nature of the household. On this first point, I'm going to make a foray into tricky waters. I'll do my best. Yes, my point is that romantic attraction poses a serious challenge to the project of understanding the opposite sex. This is not a puritanical assertion. I believe it is obvious in common human experience that romantic attraction in the context of fallen human nature can and often does hinder good judgment. This it can do, first of all, even when the romantic attraction is not in itself lustful or disordered. This blurring is a function, I believe, of the fact that romantic attraction has an urgency and a kind of self-orientation, even when not lustful, that can and often does override other considerations, thereby hindering us from seeing all that is there. We need hardly give the example of how young men with a romantic attraction are notoriously impervious to common sense. Sorry. Of course, to the extent the romantic attraction is accompanied by lustful inclinations, there is a further blinding power at work according to the powerful Aristotelian principle that we see the world through our appetites. We see the world through our appetites. We need not linger on what a powerful threat this poses, especially today to our ability to see the other sex for who they are. Yet we can take this opportunity to see from a new angle the deformation, the sadness of the sensuous man who as long as he is sensuous can never see that which he thinks is the object of his attention, a woman. He has hardly a conception of just how far he is from seeing a woman for who she is. 
Perhaps in the Q&A we could talk more about the possibility of friendship between man and woman outside of marriage. How about in college? How romantic relationships work here? What's the right timing? Can you still be, can you still be friends? <laughs> I don't know about here, that comes up every now and then at Christendom. <laughs> <clears throat> They've got that all figured out there, though. <laughs> they, they thought you all might need a hand from me, so. Okay. <laughs> the second challenge for understanding the other sex is our failure to understand the nature of the household and consequently our failure to understand the true complementarity of man and woman. This, of course, should be a whole lecture in itself. Here I will simply hint at my point. I know this doesn't sound quite as exciting as the last challenge, romance, but I think you'll appreciate this one. Complementarity means difference, the final cause of which is the common good of a community. We should not tire of reminding ourselves the difference between man and woman is for the sake approximately of the good of the household and more ultimately of the good of the polis. This latter, by the way, gives a natural foundation for understanding that not every man and woman is called to marriage. Masculinity and femininity, though first and clearly conceptualized by their roles in the household, transcend the household and can be exercised on other and higher planes. But it's fitting that we focus especially on complementarity for the good of the household. Not being able to pursue this point at length, I would emphasize this. The household is a community most immediately and obviously ordered to the generation and rearing of children. The rearing of children, says St. Thomas, requires a stable and enduring community in which authority is exercised well for the good of all. I'm going to say that again. It's one of my favorite points from St. Thomas. The rearing of children, says St. Thomas, requires a stable, this is a paraphrase, a stable and enduring community in which authority is exercised well for the good of all. Ladies and gentlemen, that is at the heart of understanding why there naturally is a difference between man and woman and why it makes all the difference. The difference between man and woman lives rightly tends to bring about precisely such a community. It's important that we advert to the dramatic nature of how the custom of our society militates against seeing the truth of human nature regarding man and woman. Much of the rhetoric and reality of the feminist movement has insisted that a woman see her very womanhood as a matter of how she seeks her own private goals. The most obvious aspect of this has been the rejection or weakening of the intrinsic connection of womanhood and motherhood. But we cannot stop here. Too often we focus on feminism and fail to grasp what is perhaps the deeper and prior rejection of the connection of manhood and fatherhood, as well as manhood and being paterfamilias in the sense of head of the household. Here's a provocative assertion for you. It has become customary for husbands and fathers to see their vocation as fundamentally exterior to the household, most instantiating the fact that almost all fathers now work remotely from their own homes. That hinders men from feeling and experiencing their complementarity with women in the work of the household. If you're interested, we could talk about that more in the question and answer. It's my assertion that it would be hard to overestimate the devastating effect of such customs on our, and I mean all of us, our ability to rightly imagine and conceptualize the true nature and role of masculinity and femininity. And this has a direct deleterious effect on our ability to live in true friendship between man and woman. But there is more, and this strikes me as key. The very complementarity of the roles of man and woman, 
while being rooted in natural difference, is also very much a work of art and of virtue. This should become more apparent if we turn to consider a couple specifics of these roles. So to talk about the difference between man and woman just generically and not talk about a couple specific things really would be a disservice to you. Here are a couple specifics. I already began with the principle that the differences are most clearly seen in the context of the household, a community ordered to the generation and rearing of children. To understand masculinity and femininity, we look especially to the differences in the context of procreation. The most basic generalization has been put this way, and I think this is a reasonable way to put it. The masculine mode of acting and generating is more active and outward. The female mode of acting and generating is more receptive and inward. This can be seen in courtship, in the marital act itself, in the raising of children, and in the basic activities of the household. While this generalization is certainly prone to misinterpretation, I would argue that properly understood it captures fundamental truths about the identity and complementarity of men and women. Men, according to a particularly significant line of Aristotle, have reason with authority. Seems to me that herein is the key to understanding his other statements about the superiority of reason and the power of deliberation in man. Aristotle is convinced that nature makes known her intention that men should rule in the household by providing men with dispositions which, when properly cultivated, especially fit him for the exercise of authority. In general, these dispositions might include a facility with abstract reasoning, and an attention to universal principles. But perhaps most significant in Aristotle and St. Thomas's mind, I think, is the masculine mode of experiencing passions in a way that less inhibits the use of reason than in a woman. Such natural dispositions are the foundation then for a man's role being more active and outward. A man then assumes the first position of authority in the household, ruling over internal affairs, always with an eye toward the outside, the village and the polis. Women, by this understanding, are naturally suited for a role that is more interior in the household, in very close proximity to children, especially in the children's early years. Here, with their deeper sensitivity and their greater attentiveness to the particular, They can foster a sense of the dignity of persons and the central importance of personal presence. At the same time, women have an essential role to play in the ruling of the household, participating in the authority exercised first by the husband. Aristotle himself is very clear on that, that man shares his authority with his wife. Give you quotations later. Another key aspect of the woman's role that must not be overlooked is that of making a house a home. I, I, I need to work on a better way of expressing this. I almost don't want to use the words I'm about to say because it trivializes it. I, it feathering the nest. Let me just skip to the next paragraph. All right. All right. But I can't skip because I have to make the point. May I simply go personal? In my experience, when a house is a home, this is most directly due to the causality of wives 
and mothers. Indeed, what would life be without that feminine genius in the home? This reminds me that this, this reminds us that essential to the role of husband and father is the ability to see and affirm all that he must entrust to his wife's care. If a husband does not see the key essential role of the feminine genius, we have a very serious problem. What I want to focus our attention on here is not so much the details of the difference in role, which is always difficult to capture with precision, but most of all in the fact that the difference can be more clearly seen precisely to the extent that men and women are virtuous. To go to perhaps the most obvious illustration, men, and here I mean males, men who are not virtuous are in fact very poorly suited to rule anything. More broadly, men who are not virtuous tend to obscure for all of us the true nature-intended masculine role. Try explaining to a young lady whose life experience has been marked by selfish, or sensuous, etc., men, that men are naturally fit to rule. Another angle into Aristotle's understanding the difference in role between men and women is his assertion that each person should partake of the moral virtues according to his state in life. He famously, perhaps notoriously, suggests that a man's courage consists in commanding while a woman's consists in obeying. He then proceeds to quote the poet that silence is a woman's glory. Perhaps at times I err in giving Aristotle the benefit of the doubt. But here I find myself thinking, cannot both of these statements be interpreted congenially? Obedience and virtuous silence. These can be perfections of a very high order. Obedience and silence will indeed, however, take on a negative connotation in a context of tyrannical and or noisy men. My point then in this penultimate section of my paper was twofold. To illustrate some specifics of an Aristotelian view of the distinction of masculine and feminine roles and therein to appreciate yet again the difficulty we face in trying to discover them. I had put before you two questions. What is necessary for man and woman to be friends? And can they be friends in the highest sense of friendship? Before I make a very brief case for the second, we are nearing the end. My second part's very short. Before I make a very brief case for the second, I will give a summary of how I think I have answered the first question. I sought to find in Aristotle's understanding of friendships between unequals the key to what is necessary in forming such friendships. We said that the basic structure is know the difference, love according to the difference, and live out that difference in love. I've suggested that it might be more difficult than we have realized to come to understand the difference. I also made a little detour offering some suggestions as to how to think about that difference. Regarding the second question, let me briefly state the opposing argument. In other words, is the friendship between man and woman of the highest kind? 
Given that friendship is rooted in and seeks equality and sameness, the most perfect of friendships will be virtuous friendships between those who are equal and the same. We might recall that in the Eudamian ethics, while Aristotle is willing to speak of friendship between unequals, he does not want to speak of them as friends. To address this, we need to return to the proper act. Indeed, the end of friendship. What is friendship all about? Convivere, living together. It's all about sharing a common life, sharing in common activities. I'm going to give you two quotations from St. Thomas. Quote, further, in intense friendship is impossible to be friends with many, according to the philosopher in Book 8 of the Ethics. Hence, if the wife has but one husband, while the husband has several wives, the friendship will not be equal on either side, and consequently will not be freely bestowed, but a servile friendship, as it were, end quote. It's interesting that St. Thomas refers to Aristotle's assertion that one cannot be friends with many people, an assertion that Aristotle makes regarding perfect friendship of virtuous people. Interestingly, St. Thomas speaks here of intense friendship. Translators have rendered intensa as perfect, but this, I think, would be a mistake. Perfect friendship would refer to friendship where there is no inequality and difference. St. Thomas uses the word intensa to indicate that though this is a friendship of inequality, it is very much like perfect friendship of the virtuous. Here's another quotation. Moreover, this is the key quotation, the greater the friendship, the more stable and lasting it is. Now seemingly between husband and wife, there is the greatest friendship, amicitia maxima, for they are made one not only in the act of bodily intercourse, which even among lower animals causes an agreeable fellowship, but also as partners in the whole conversatio of daily life. So that to indicate this, man must leave father and mother for his wife's sake. Therefore, it is right that matrimony should be altogether indissoluble. That's St. Thomas's key statement on the friendship of man and woman. What I find particularly powerful about this quotation is the emphasis of convivere. It seems to me that St. Thomas's position is something like this. The difference between man and woman is an intrinsic problem for friendship. And it is a basis for saying that the virtuous friendship of two men or two women more perfectly fulfills the formal ratio of friendship. Nevertheless, since convivere as act is the end for the sake of which the habit of friendship exists, the spousal friendship outstrips other friendships precisely through the excellence of its convivere. In human life, no other friendship has a natural context for such a full sharing of human life. St. Thomas's reference to the broad extent of spousal living together is, in fact, parallel to a point that Aristotle himself makes. I'm going to skip the quotation, but Saint Aristotle says something just like St. Thomas just said, though he doesn't call the friendship amicitia maxima. Final point before concluding. In the Secunda Secunda, St. Thomas says that the basic division of human life is into contemplative and active. Here's how he describes the active life. Quote, all the occupations of human actions, if directed to the requirements of the present life in accord with right reason, belong to the active life, which provides for the necessities of the present life by means of well-ordered activity. The active, end quote. The active life, you will notice, is a properly human life, 
and it requires by its definition that one be living a well-ordered life with right intention. Seems to me this life is shared most fully by a husband and wife. Spouses have the opportunity to coordinate their actions consistently day in and day out about the most urgent matters of the active life, meeting the various necessities of the members of the household, rearing children, doing all this for the sake of the broader common good. In conclusion, it's perhaps clear from how I have presented these matters that I think we can learn much from Aristotle and St. Thomas about the friendship of men and women. My main interest is not in offering an apologia for their views, though at times I do so. What I have found most striking and helpful in their view is the account of what is required for convivere, living together in the friendship of unequals. The case of man and woman is especially unique, as opposed to parent and child and teacher and student, as a case where the difference itself is never diminished. The man is always a husband and father. The woman is always a wife and mother. Indeed, I am suggesting that those called to the married life do well to consider, pardon me, do well to discover and live the difference. To do so today especially requires no ordinary humility, courage, and chastity, among other virtues. One thing is clear. In the absence of such virtues and a concomitant recognition of the divinely ordained complementarity and all that it implies, any friendship between a man and a woman is doomed to frustration. While on the other hand, there is perhaps no greater icon of the happiness of the active life than a husband and a wife who through long shared struggles striving to see and love the other for who he is, have come to know the fruits of such faithful love, fruits the number and beauty of which no tongue can tell. Thank you very much.